This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with support from StoryWorth. If there's ever been a year to make the moms in your life feel loved and appreciated on Mother's Day, it's this one. I haven't seen my mom in over a year, and that's been hard on us both. So it's been extra meaningful to share this gift that our whole family can appreciate for years to come. StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps your mom, grandmother, mother-in-law, and every mother figure in your life share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. Every week, StoryWorth emails out a different story prompt, like, has anyone ever rescued you, figuratively or literally? And what is your secret? I never would have thought to ask my mom those things. I learned about a trip to Venice that my mom took with her mother when she was 16, and how when the sailors from the Italian Navy docked on a bridge under their room, my grandmother closed the shutters for fear of the sailors jumping in. Yeah, my mom was a hottie. After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your mom's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. StoryWorth is offering $10 off your first purchase at storyworth.com nocturne. Again, that's storyworth.com nocturne. This episode is also brought to you with support from BetterHelp. It's been a challenging year for pretty much everyone, but even under normal circumstances, we all have times where we need some extra help with stress or relationships or just feeling happier. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so you can connect safely and privately online within 48 hours of requesting an appointment. BetterHelp lets you connect one-to-one with a counselor, and they're committed to helping you find a great match, so it's easy to switch therapists if it's not a good fit. And they can help you find a therapist with expertise in the areas you want help with, whether it's depression, anxiety, sleep, identity issues. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and everything you share is confidential. Also, you can send messages to your counselor anytime, and they'll get back to you quickly. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash nocturne. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com slash nocturne for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. springtime in the Northern Hemisphere, and an epic river of birds is migrating north, many in astoundingly dangerous journeys that require incredible perseverance. When we see a small songbird in our neighborhood, say a black pole warbler, few of us think about the fact that this tiny creature, weighing less than half an ounce, regularly travels from the Amazon jungle up to its Arctic breeding grounds. Over the span of a few weeks, this courageous little bird flies 6,000 miles, and then a few months later turns around and makes the trip back, including 80 straight hours flying over the ocean, no land in sight. We don't necessarily appreciate that a small, delicate songbird in our yard may be in the process of traveling a vast distance, often rising to altitudes so high we can't see them. 
and that every migrating bird is the descendant of other tiny heroes, because only the survivors breed. There's so many people out there that, uh, that birds are just a word. They just aren't tuned in to birds and nature in general. I think when you start to spend time with birds, there's something that happens when you do it for a while. I think, I mean, I, I know there is this magical realm that you can connect with, with birds and with other creatures, whether it's whales or whatever, that, that there's this other deeper realm that is there. It's very tough to put into words. It's just more of an of a experience of your being with these other beings and sort of a breaking down of the self and just being, being a part of the whole. My name's Bill Evans. I study the nocturnal flight calls of migrating birds. Bill Evans is widely considered to be the founder of the field of analyzing these nocturnal flight calls. He's also the director of a nonprofit that he started over 20 years ago. Old Bird Incorporated basically just puts out information and resources for other people to monitor nocturnal flight calls. You may be someone who notices the incredible variety of birds in the world, or even one who registers the changes in local populations due to twice yearly migrations. But you are the rarest kind of bird observer if you've noticed this often overlooked detail so integral to their existence. Most birds migrate at night, especially the songbirds. And so in the day, if you look up in the sky, you might see a few birds flying around. But if you could see what was up there at night, especially in certain times of year, like the migration period, it would just blow your mind because there's so many birds migrating at night. We're talking billions of birds coursing through the night sky as most of us lie in bed completely oblivious to the epic endeavor transpiring above us. And they do that because it's dark and they're safer. We think... They don't have to worry about small hawks eating them. And, you know, for a small songbird going to South America or Central America, it's easier to be flying up in the sky away from cover at night. Um, So if they do that during the day, they're at risk. And at night, they have some protection. Kick, 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 burr of king rail and nocturnal flight. The eerie, winnowing flight call of the common snipe. Juvenile and adult Caspian turns in night migration. Small flock of Brant. Warbler, Swainson's thrush, and rose-breasted grosbeak. White-breasted nuthatch. passing waterfowl flock and the plane of night flight calls of the hermit thrush. Night flight calls of the viri. As the days grow longer and the nights become shorter, more and more small birds take off just after nightfall, flying through the darkness and then landing moments before the new day begins. It's at dusk and dawn that they're in the most danger from predators as they take to the sky and come in to rest. But as they fly through the darkness in vast numbers, drawn forward by a mysterious inner compass, they call out to each other in a language that few of us are aware of. 
the calls that birds make at night you know, serve a function for communication, for location. I'm here, where are you? And then listening and then hearing the call from another bird, and they work out their flight spacing that way. That's not something that happens during the day as much, but at night, there's so many up there that a collision with another bird is definitely possible. So they get these calls to keep in contact and to prevent collisions, because if they collide with another bird in night migration, break a wing, you're done. Bill grew up in a bird-watching family. His dad was a birder. In fact, he saw Backman's warbler before it went extinct. When I was about 15, I remember my dad pointing out the night flight calls of migrating birds in our backyard. Bill maintained an interest in birds throughout high school, but he didn't think of it as anything more than a hobby. In college in the 70s, credits were cheap, and he found himself fascinated by a wide variety of topics— not really focusing in on one thing. As he entered into his 20s, he was basically taking courses about anything that sparked his interest without any goals or real direction. And so I was really feeling my freedom sort of, you know, investigating the world. And again, I, I remember reading this passage from John James Audubon, the famous ornithologist. And uh, he was in northern Kentucky in the early 1800s. And he described this phenomenon of passenger pigeons, um, now long extinct since the early 1900s, but then there were still millions of them. And he described them passing over in such dense waves that they literally eclipsed the sun. And, uh, and it went on for three days straight. And I just remember this poignant moment and it's sort of this sadness that I was never gonna see that. And just it just sort of opened up this whole sort of depressing thought that, you know, that things are changing so fast and, and things have changed so much. I was never going to see the way the world was 500 years ago, you know, and then I, I sort of had this resolution with it all, this epiphany that, oh, well, you know, things are going to keep changing. And, you know, I can document what's here now for the future. This epiphany happened the way many great epiphanies do. In May, I had been camping out at a state park east of Minneapolis-St. Paul on the St. Croix River. But it was up on a bluff above the river, and I got back to my campsite after delivering pizza, and I laid down in my sleeping bag and started to relax. And it was just this beautiful late spring night with a light south wind, and I all of a sudden tuned in to these night flight calls again. Is the first time I actually tuned into them myself. And I started to listen, and there were just hundreds of calls up there, all these night-migrating songbirds headed north to breed for the summer. And there was this one very distinctive call, black-billed cuckoo. And it was sort of a gargly note. Uh, when I play it for some people, they think, oh, that's a raccoon. I mean, it doesn't sound really like a bird when you first hear it. You could hear these individuals coming, you know, a soft call coming, and as they would fly by, the, the call would get louder, and then, you know, it would get weaker as it continued to the north. So I could sort of estimate the number of individuals passing. And 
I was estimating about 100 an hour, which was incredible because this was such a secretive bird. If you go out and try to find a black-billed cuckoo during the day, you're lucky to find two or three. They're very secretive. And that was sort of my next huge moment in my, uh, my career because it felt like literally this vision. All of a sudden, all these you know, different vectors in my life, you know, science of history, history of science, you know, and birding came together. And I just decided that I was going to record the whole night because I'd heard this amazing night, and I was gonna figure out how to record the sound from the whole night of the sky, and then hand that up to the future. Just hand that, and it was, that's the simple concept, and I've been working on that. It was such a huge moment for me. I mean, I just, I still feel the emotion of it, and I still feel like, you know, that was my vision. And even though I do other things in my life, it's just, I was going to do that, you know, and I wanted to be able to, sit out in a field at night and hear these flights and not just hear them but know the calls and be able to sort of visualize what species were coming over. When you speak with conservationists, you often find a surprising mix of pragmatism and optimism. I say surprising because it's easy to feel hopeless and overwhelmed when we learn about how various animal populations are dwindling due to climate change and other causes. Bill had that initial feeling of hopelessness when he realized how much things had changed in our natural world since the time of John James Audubon. But that feeling transformed into something else. It was hope. It was hopeful, yeah. I mean, it was like, instead of being depressed, it turned into hope. And you gotta make the best with the situation you're in, and, and that's, that's what that was about. Bill pictures a person 100 or 500 years in the future, having the same experience that he had, of realizing how much the natural world has changed and longing to know what it was really like before. Yeah, I do. And, uh, and that's me. <laughs> it, it, it's not that I believe in reincarnation, literally, but I do believe that there's going to be people with the same sort of spirit and the same sort of connection with birds. And I, I see it in, in other bird watchers. I see it in past ornithologists. I can read a, you know, the, the history of someone's work and I just know, I recognize myself. I recognize that same passion in, in other people. And the, the poignant thing for me about that is I know that I'm gonna be back. I know that I'm gonna be back. I have a real gut sense of that, not that it's going to be my body, it's not a literal thing, it's just sort of this gut feeling that, you know, whether it's that I love this place, that I love the creatures, that I love the whole phenomenon, and that, you know, that, that, that I'm dying into that, and I'm dying into that, you know, for, for life, and, and handing down the data, and so that's been the, a, a big exploration is how to hand down data, how to hand down the information through time. Like if I had information on birds, bird populations 500 years ago, we don't have that. We just have these, these vague theories of what was here. Bill wanted his future self to have more than vague theories of what the bird world looked like 500 years in the past. It was a calling, if not an obvious career path. But, you know, that urge that endeavor to, to want to count these birds, to want to count these calls going over, 
this is hasn't been, <laughs> this was not a rational decision really to pursue this in 1985 to literally drop everything and jump off the cliff with this because it didn't make any sense you know and I remember my mom telling me you know how are you going to fit into the world this is so obscure and and at the time I was really the only one doing it that I knew of um, there had been you know, you go back to the late 1800s and you find other people that had connected with that night flight call phenomenon. John James Audubon was one of them, writing of such observations in 1830, when the concept of migration itself was still new. And one of the first night migration studies really happened in the 40s. The uh, fellow named George Lowry organized uh, people across North America to uh, look at the full moon and count how many birds were flying by at night and, and which direction they were going. And he compiled this on numerous full moon nights across the continent. Bill found present-day kindred spirits when he and his dad went to a birding conference in Tucson, Arizona. And this is shortly after I've had this vision. And I heard um, a guy named Greg Budney give a talk there. And he was the curator at the time of the Cornell Library of Natural Sounds. And that institution is now called the Macaulay Library of Natural Sounds, I believe. And that's the largest natural sound archive in the world. And so I heard about this place, and I thought, wow, I've got to go there because they have this great archive. There might be clues to these night flight calls there. He finally did get to Cornell in 1986 and took a course in natural sound recording. And then... Later that year, I did get a, get a call that they had an opening for a technician in the Library of Natural Sounds. They knew I was a hardcore birdhead and that I'd be useful maybe in the library to help identify unknowns and things like that. So anyway, I got a job offer. That gave me the opportunity to go through their collection and see if they had any clues to these avian night flight calls. And um, they didn't really. Um, no one had really focused on it before. The, most of the calls in the collection were the songs and also alarm calls, which is something when a recordist with a microphone approaches a bird, the bird tends to give alarm calls. In the meantime, I haven't even graduated from college, but I'm on this trail, I'm on this passion and just going for it. And so I, I started in, I think, January of 88. And, you know, it was an eight-hour job and regular work hours and made a little money. Um, I lived in a yurt across the street from the Lab of Ornithology. So I lived pretty frugally. I saved some money. And when the migration season came, I was out as much as possible and tried to balance it with the job. It was tough, and this is one of these things that I've always struggled with is, you know, how to keep a foot in society, how to make enough money to pay your bills, and but yet still pursue your passion. So that lasted only about a year and a half before I just, uh, you know, I think there was one day when I followed a cold front across from the Midwest, and I stayed up for three nights in a row, and I was just such a wreck when I came back to work, and I, you know, I just broke down. Bill never did finish college. Instead, the passion and dedication from that early vision kept him focused on his mission of counting and documenting night bird migrations using sound, something that's actually harder than you might think. The night flight calls of birds 
they're not the song, they're short calls. Like for warblers and sparrows, they're typically less than a tenth of a second long. They're like a single cricket chirp, if you can imagine that. They're high-pitched, and they're just like a pssst. And other species, like thrushes, sort of mid-sized songbirds, give more mid-toned, mid-frequency whistles. And uh, like, you know, just like you'd whistle. And, and there's, there's a whole range of different call types, but generally they're short. Most of the calls are less than a third of a second long for the songbirds, and sometimes a little bit longer for water birds, shorebirds. Herons give these famous squawks, prehistoric squawks. And, you know, they, the interesting thing is, is that species groups, you know, different families of birds don't always have distinctive calls within the family. So you can have overlap between different families, and that's what makes it so difficult. And that took a decade or more to figure out a lot of those calls, and that kind of work is still going on today. There are all these short calls, like warblers and sparrows. When you first start to try to figure them out, they all sound the same. The night calls may sound the same, but they don't look the same. If you make the spectrogram, what that allows you to do is sort of to blow up a picture of the sound by time and frequency, and you can see these different modulation rates that are very distinctive, different pitch, whether a call descends or rises. And when it's only a 20th of a second long, that's tricky. It takes your ear a while to figure out how to do that. And how, you might ask, do you match migrating birds with their night calls to begin with, if it's dark and you can't see them? Well, yeah, that's what took a long time. There was someone else who was also trying to solve the mystery of these calls. A colleague named Michael O'Brien, who was a bird tour leader, but very keen in the field. He's been at Cape May Bird Observatory for a long time. Bill and Michael pooled their knowledge and hundreds of recordings of birds calling in flight and matched them up with known timings and routes of migrations. Occasionally, they'd be able to match a bird to their call by spotting them at dawn as the bird came in to land they would still be giving their night call, and you could see them make a recording and get the identity of the call. Uh, so we put out a CD-ROM in 2002 that it was the first sort of compilation of the flight calls of land birds in eastern North America. Renowned bird expert Ken Kaufman called the release of the CD a watershed moment for active birders and recalls spending hours studying the various seeps and chirps. And then we had these calls that we'd record at night that spectrographically matched one of the species. And the identification of the species took a huge amount of time. I mean, you know, like six years on one specific species, I remember. And it was our collaboration over a decade that led to this sort of key, this guide. It was just really a preliminary guide, but it was key because one of the dynamics here is at night is you don't know one until you know them all. And... Just because you get an example of, a, say, a certain warbler flying during the day and it gives this flight call and you record that and then you match that at night with an unseen night flight call, you still have to make sure that there's no other species that give a similar one. And that's why it took so long. We really had to get examples of all the land birds that migrate at night before we could produce that. And we put it online in 2017. It's public. Bill experimented with different techniques to record night migration calls. He researched ways to design microphones that would be able to detect the calls high up in the sky and that would also capture a broad cross-section of birds. 
he built on the idea of something called a pressure zone microphone. And uh, the nice thing about that was is I could get something like a dinner plate with the curled up edges a little bit, put the microphone element, get, I'd get these hearing aid microphone elements, you know, for about 10 bucks or so. You'd mount that on the dinner plate, and then I'd wrap the whole thing tautly over the dinner plate with uh, saran wrap to waterproof it. And I'd have a little circuit that was controlling the microphone. I'd power it with a 9-volt battery or something. I started making these little $30, $40 microphones. And then uh, on Old Bird, I put up the instructions to do it. Because in the 90s, I was still like, you know, one of the few people out there doing this here and um, trying to get more people into it. Bill realized that most people didn't even know that there were legions of birds flying overhead throughout the night much less that they were often exotic birds flying to and from far-flung locations. You're not driving somewhere to see birds. You can pick up birds that are migrating from Alaska in the, in the Arctic right over your house anywhere in North America, practically. So you don't have to go to Costa Rica. You can get, you know, these birds coming right over, you know, if you know what you're looking for. You know, back in the 90s, I was trying to promote I'm sort of like a Johnny Appleseed trying to get uh, people into night flight call monitoring. And the easiest way to do it, especially with younger folks, was to provide a cheap way that they could build their own. And um, so that was that became called sort of the flower pot microphone. And I put all the instructions. They're still there today on the old oldbird.org website. The other thing he did was put up a bunch of these microphones on roofs all over the place. He set them up so the sound recorded onto simple VHS tapes over the span of an eight-hour night. Because if you just have one station up and you analyze that data, you know, the question pops in your mind, well, okay, I'm, I'm getting this type of bird call here and this quantity of calling here. What's happening 20 miles to the east? What's happening 20 miles to the west? You know, I would knock on a door and say, I'd like to put a microphone on your roof for uh, three months during the migration to monitor night flight calls of migrating birds. And most people did it, and they would change the tapes for me. And then I'd go occasionally go back and pick up these tapes. And each tape had eight hours, and there was no software to automatically extract these calls. So I had to sit down and listen uh, to each one of these. And a lot of them, especially on the nights that weren't big migration nights, I never never worked on, but the big migration nights were amazing um, because I, I could see that, that it was different at all these sites across the state. And there were these glacial patterns of, you know, these migrants coming down out of Canada in the fall. And on the eastern side of the state, there'd be more of this kind of species and the western side of the state, more of another species. And, and there were just these complex patterns that, uh, that were going over at night that we couldn't see any other way, species patterns. This is actually a big deal, to be able to discern species patterns in night bird migrations. With the advent of radar for defense purposes around World War II, for the first time, scientists could see evidence of birds traversing the night skies. This was after the initial panic in Britain, when radar showed numerous blips moving across the English Channel, and scientists mistook them for German bombers. Later, more sophisticated weather radar systems using Doppler technology could show not just evidence of birds, but also how many were traveling, what direction they were going, and how fast they were moving. Radar was a huge component in the last 50-plus years for showing us that there's massive bird migrations at night. So we, we heard the calling. The calling had been heard for millennia, probably. But just because you hear a call, you don't necessarily know where the bird is going. 
But radar has an Achilles heel. It's good at detecting numbers, but it has very uh, poor resolution on species. Whereas acoustics is just the other way around. We get really good species information, but we don't know anything about a bird that doesn't call, obviously. We're dependent on the calls for information on what species are flying over. Bill spent several years listening through to whole night recordings to identify the migrating birds flying overhead. He dreamt of software that could isolate individual bird calls so he wouldn't have to listen through to the whole night. But he didn't have the computing skills to make it happen. Finally, a researcher at Cornell, using Bill's recordings, created the very first automatic detector to extract the individual nocturnal calls from the long recordings, making the process of identifying who is flying overhead at night much faster and easier. Now, with the possibility of combining radar information, showing numbers and locations of birds, and software to identify many of the recorded calls, that early vision that Bill had to document whole nights had grown into an almost sci-fi-sounding aspiration that he somewhat jokingly dubbed Migration TV. Yeah, I remember Migration TV, thinking about that in 94, and that was sort of a really sexy idea. So you could put like a microphone out in the field and feed it into a computer, and it would automatically digest all the calling information spit out of species list in the morning. I thought, hey, we can put all these night migrations on everyone's computer screen the next morning. This is going to revolutionize conservation and environmental education. Having all this information about which birds are migrating through the night skies is interesting to know on a curiosity level. But it's also an important puzzle piece in understanding the effects of our changing planet. Under normal conditions, birds are unbelievably masterful navigators. These are very smart creatures. They know when to fly. They're expert navigators, just beyond, beyond our belief. I mean, it's just they can use the stars for navigation. They can use the Earth's magnetic field. Recent research from Germany in the past couple decades has shown that if you take a migratory songbird and you put it in a box without any light, they cannot orient on which way is north or south. But if you have some light in there, a little bit of light, especially with shorter wavelengths like green or blue, that bird can orient north and south. This incredible sensitivity to light, a key part of migrating birds' navigation system, has become a liability in the face of artificial light created by humans. They didn't evolve with artificial light. They had the moon, and that was, you know, that was it for night migration. And the stars, of course, on clear nights. It's been well documented that they use you know, the constellations of the stars for, for navigation. And so what happens is you get birds migrating over dark countryside and they're just calling sort of occasionally. And then if they come to a city, even just a well-lit convenience store at night with a lot of bright light going up, that is a disturbance to the bird's navigation system. And they will start calling more because they're confused or disoriented. And then besides calling more, they're also flying around in a circle and remaining in the lighted area because they've sort of temporarily switched over to their diurnal way of, of moving around by seeing things. And so you know, if you have a microphone there, you're not only getting more calls because the bird's calling more, but you're also getting maybe the same bird circling around coming through the microphone pickup zone again. Birds become disoriented and circle at night in cities, leading to mid-air collisions with other birds and with buildings. They collide regularly with communication towers. In some cases, 
leading to thousands of songbird deaths in a single night. There was one kill in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. It was estimated 20,000 songbirds in one night. And, you know, when it happened, they, they thought there'd been a poisoning. The birds are dropping from the sky, landing on people's roofs. But it was all around this tall TV tower that had these lights, and there were also bright lights coming up from the radio station. And in the morning, there were just birds everywhere, dead birds everywhere, injured birds everywhere. It's not that night-migrating birds can't navigate with light, because, of course, they fly in daylight. But it's the light where it's not expected to be that's a problem. There's also a problem with other things where they're not expected to be. Beginning in the late 90s, people realized that wind turbines could be a threat for uh, birds, and especially night-migrating birds. All of a sudden, there were jobs for you know people like me, researchers that knew about night migration that could go out and do a study and, and evaluate what species were going over. Bill has done bird migration studies for both wind farm developers and organizations trying to prevent individual wind energy developments. I'm one of the few people, I think, in the country that's worked for both sides. Um, I can see the perspective and the challenges for wind developers. But when I was working at a wind energy project in Wisconsin in about 1999 or 2000, sometimes when I was camping out there at night, monitoring my equipment, I would hear these things, these collision sounds. And there was one night when a lot of birds were moving through and I got a number of these collision sounds and I had microphones on the ground where I could triangulate the source of the, the sound. And the source of the sound was coming from out on the blades. It wasn't coming from the, the turbine. So even though I didn't actually, this was at night, so I couldn't see what was going on, I have pretty strong evidence that these sounds are collision sounds. And it's, it was something that I, I really wasn't expecting. It's like the sound of a baseball getting hit by a bat, you know, like a home run or something. That sort of, it's got sort of a woody thing. And these, these uh, wind turbine rotors, the blades are made of fiberglass and they're hollow. And they're also, the tips are going something like 200 miles an hour, depending on the model. And if a bird, even a small songbird, hits at the end there, when you hear just that one little sound, it's like, oh. And you have how many wind turbines going across this continent all night long, 24 hours a day for 30 years. Um, and so, I mean, I'm for wind energy, and I think I, I see it as sort of a bridge renewable fuel because huge numbers of, of birds are migrating at night. And um, when fatality studies are done at wind projects, 85% or more, at least in eastern North America, of the fatalities are night migrating birds. So these birds, they can't see the turbines at night. You know, if it's foggy or something like that, they're certainly not going to see them. And a lot of them will fly right through the rotor-swept zone and not get hit. But you have a lot of birds that are experiencing something new that they've never experienced in, you know, millions of years of evolution. All of a sudden, there's tall man-made structures jutting up. Birds aren't used to it. They're hitting them. Uh, they're hitting the guy wires on communications towers. They're just, you know, randomly getting chopped by wind turbines. Everyone has thought that, that the key for wind energy is safe sighting for birds. You know, you can stick a wind energy project anywhere in North America and it's going to kill birds, but at some place 
It's going to kill an order of magnitude or two more birds. It would be great if we could cite it as harmoniously as possible. This is a huge issue. Most conservationists support green energy, including wind power, if it's implemented in such a way that it doesn't decimate vulnerable species. And the work that Bill Evans does can help with that by identifying which birds tend to migrate through proposed sites. One of the ways that monitoring nocturnal flight calls can be applied for helping wind energy sighting is by setting out these microphones before the wind energy project is built or before the site is even decided upon and seeing if there are any rare or endangered species that are flying around in the airspace that would be the rotor swept zone. So I can give you an example. There is a wind project that was proposed in New York near the shoreline of Lake Ontario, sort of in between Buffalo and Rochester. It was called the Lighthouse Wind Project. And for that specific project, I was not working for the developer. I did a demonstration project for Old Bird to demonstrate the utility of acoustic monitoring at that proposed site. And I set up about seven monitoring stations in a roughly a 10-mile by 5-mile rectangle. And one of the interesting results was a detection of a species called the king rail. And it's a little bit smaller than a crow, maybe a marsh bird. But we just have a couple relic populations in New York State. So the population is not very large. It's a, technically a state-listed threatened species. And there's very few reports of this species every year in New York, um, like literally, you know, two or three maybe. And putting out these microphones, guess what I got? I got king rails flying over in night migration and giving their very distinctive vocalization. So we know now that king rail migrates through this site. And the state regulators can do what they'll do. You know, you just throw the information out there, but that's the big thing here, is if we don't know what the impact is, we don't know what the impact is. And it could snowball when more and more of these projects are up, and then you, you, you have major impacts that there's nothing you can do about. It's too late. Bill has made a rich career out of the vision he had that night, camping by the river after delivering pizzas. He's done bird surveys for different groups and industries. He scared birds away from airport runways to prevent them from colliding with planes. And most importantly, he's deepened the study of acoustic monitoring of night-migrating birds. And much like the migrating birds he studies, he's persevered by virtue of dogged determination, never wavering despite the challenges he's encountered. You know, without a college degree, I wasn't really set up for, like, bringing in grants. And, um, you know, working in the academic system where you really need a PhD. I, I went... I went to someone, one of the top radar researchers in the country, in 89, and I you know, proposed doing a PhD, and the first thing was to figure out these calls. And he told me that there's no money for descriptive biology anymore. And he was like getting bird brains and blending them in and looking for magnetite. If you're at a university, you go where you get your grants. And ornithologists, there's been times when they got a lot of money from military, you know, air collisions and things like that. Um, the Air Force put in a lot of money to bird migration research. 
and um, there's other other periods where it's dominated by other things but so the descriptive biology fell to really uh, out of control amateur myself and Michael O'Brien Without a doubt, the work that Bill Evans and Michael O'Brien did has contributed significantly to the field of bird migration. Their recordings and the identification software designed by both Cornell and Old Bird have pushed things forward. But the puzzle is still incomplete. So if you're just looking to identify one, one species, it's not as big a problem. If you're trying to have some software that's automatically identifying everything up there, that's a much bigger problem. But even that is much easier than trying to identify all the, you know, take a computer into the field and, and have, have it automatically identify all the bird song. There's no software that automatically identifies these calls. It's still all done manually. People make the identification by looking at spectrographs or by hearing the call. It's just a hard problem and you gotta have, things have to line up politically and you need to have money and uh, you have to hire software programs. The technology is there to do it. The technology that would make migration TV a reality, where you could record the sound of a whole night and then wake up in the morning, open up your computer, and see all the birds that were migrating while you were sleeping. That was the dream in 94. <laughs> and at the time, I really believed it, and I didn't think it was going to take this long. I mean, I've been out there working 35 years on this, and... Uh, and I still somehow feel like I haven't done enough to make that happen. There's still much to learn about the intricacies of how birds undertake the amazing and heroic migrations that they do, and also about how to help them weather future challenges as the world they've been successfully navigating for millennia continues to change. This is where Bill sees his role up to now and going forward. Avian night flight call monitoring is a new technique and it's very powerful because you don't have to go anywhere. You just put up a microphone and you can get a, a thousand birds flying over a night. My role, when I look back, really has been fanning the flame, getting the cheap microphones out there, getting a lot of people doing this, getting different institutions involved, you know, and getting more brain power, especially on the automatic stuff. So I think that is happening now and I think it is going to move rapidly in the next decade. It's very fulfilling to see all the activity out there. But right now, I feel like I'm planning my exit strategy after doing this for 35 years that, you know, it takes a long time to get your data together. And if I'm lucky, I might have a couple more decades. And my focus now is just, I love writing these manuscripts describing the data of what birds are flying over at night where and, you know, what the patterns are. So I'm, I'm working on those manuscripts. I'm working on a second edition of the flight call guide for Eastern North America and hopefully expanding that to the West and just really helping other people get involved and do this. It's not something one person can do. It, it needs lots of people out there enjoying the phenomenon and uh, there's all sorts of cool discoveries, I think, to be made. So my, my goal right now is just to get the knowledge that I have written up so that I'll help the next folks so when I come back, I'm reincarnated in 500 years. There's my data. It'll be all waiting for me. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. 
Bird recordings in this episode were generously provided by Bill Evans. Thanks to StoryWorth for supporting Nocturne. Give a mom in your life the most meaningful gift this Mother's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com nocturne. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com nocturne for $10 off. Thanks to BetterHelp for supporting Nocturne. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com nocturne. Connect one-on-one with a counselor online to get help and feel better. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash nocturne. You can find more information about Bill Evans' nonprofit Old Bird at oldbird.org. You can also find that link and other links to information about nocturnal bird migration at our website, nocturnepodcast.org. While you're there, find out how to help Nocturne by clicking on the link for support. Your contribution of a few dollars an episode helps keep the show going and can also give you some extras, like Nightlight's bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes info. Thank you to everyone who already supports the show. Extra big thanks to Nathan Lung, who joined the Happy Possum level of support on Patreon. Also at our website, check out the incredible episode art by Magdalena Matryka, our new illustrator. Every month, she creates captivating, beautiful images as companions for each new audio story. Till next time, thanks for listening.